Hey, you may be seated. As we uh, start today off in entering Holy Week, it's the most amazing week in the history of the world as the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, our Lord, gave himself for us in such a way that could only be the way that our sins are paid for and that we can be free. And so, man, this is a week like no other. We want to take advantage of the Spirit of God that is here, present with us, and outpoured upon all humanity. So we know that the Spirit of God was poured out on the day of Pentecost and upon all flesh, it says. And so it's not that all flesh has received the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has fallen out upon all flesh. And so those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior as of yet, the Holy Spirit has poured out them in the form of conviction. And so the Spirit of God is calling to them and drawing upon their hearts to bring them to their understanding of their need of the Savior. And so, church, we want to take advantage of that. We want to be the instruments that God died to make us. And so as we do that, I'm asking you to embrace this prayer this week, that within the body of Christ here in Christian Faith Fellowship, that we would extend the message of Jesus Christ and see at least five people this week come to know Christ as their Savior. Okay, now, I understand we don't do that. Only God can redeem and save people. But we are the instruments by which he calls them. And God wants to use us to spread that good news of Jesus Christ, to be the light and the salt in the earth. And so I want to encourage you to be praying. And let's, as a community, ask God to redeem a minimum of five souls this week. Now, I'm asking you to embrace that because I understand that's a small number. I get it. I know that. And only God can do it. However, I look at this like church, as we embrace what God has asked us to do, which is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. And weekly, I ask you, are you sharing God's stories with people? That's your testimony. We should be sharing our testimony with people out there in the world. All right, you can share it with believers, but it's non-believers that need to know about your Savior. And so we need to be sharing that testimony out there at every opportunity. And as this week, the world's mind and attention is turned upon Easter, the celebration, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't care what label they put on it, what the name they call it, I really don't. It's all about Jesus, our Savior. And so church, we need to take advantage of that and share the good news of the gospel. If you are blessed to be able to pray with someone and lead them to Christ, why don't you text me and let me know so we as a church can celebrate together. We're asking God to do this. And the following week, we have baptism set up. So we'll have a baptism celebration on the 28th. If you want to be baptized or someone you know, just go to our website, cffTucson.com. Click on that baptism thing. You'll fill out a little thing and it'll be sent to me just so we can communicate. All right, that's all. I just want to communicate with you about the baptism, how it happens, what's taking place for us as a church to celebrate with you. So that'll take place in two weeks. This coming week on Friday, we have good, good Friday services. Now look, I don't normally do announcements, but because of what's happening this week, I want to share with you. Good Friday at 7 o'clock, we'll be here to have a communion service. We're in communication with the mission to find out if uh, it's possible for y'all to join us. I don't know yet, but we will set up the drivers to be able to get you to come if, if that's acceptable and whatever's going on. We want you to be a part of that. If not, just join with us in your prayers as we come together this Friday as the church to celebrate communion on the day the Lord gave his life for us. And then next Sunday, we're going to have our regular schedule, everything the same, except that in the, in the amphitheater downstairs, we will be in the in the the uh, elevator will be fixed by next week. That just happened last night late, so I apologize for any inconvenience that that created for y'all. 
But next week we'll have fruit and some pastries down there. It's not going to be a full breakfast, but just something to share together to have some fellowship. So if you can come early, uh, come and join us there. Uh, it'll be happening between each of the three services. The next thing I want to let you know about as we progress forward in what God's doing is uh, you know the schedule of everything happening, but now uh, the church <clears throat> the church has tried to do good things for God and uh, we always try to do those things. And, and some of the things we try and do for God, we really kind of mess up who God is and how we do it. And so I want to I share with you something that I feel, you know, in my heart that I want us to engage upon. I'm going to do it and I'm inviting you to join me. How about if I do it like that? All right. So I'm inviting you to join me in something that I'm going to just call this because I don't know a name for it. Just this week, been praying, thinking about it. And I'm going to call it Reverse Lent. Okay, so I'm calling it that because the church, it's not a biblical practice, Lent isn't. The church created that to try and get people to become attentive to what Christ did by fasting, denying yourself, coming into the passion of Christ. And so in that process, though, uh, please, church, understand me when I say this to you. If you know your church history, you know the church was... um, not right. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And, and their intentions were good in the beginning, but the church became corrupt itself. Now, what happens is everybody in America knows about Mardi Gras. And this is how that all came to be. Mardi Gras happened because of Lent. And people wore costumes and covered their faces because they were going out to indulge in all kinds of sin, paganism so that they could like have a last fling with sin before Lent. Seriously, that's, why, that's where it comes from. And so the reason why they would cover their faces and dress up is so that somehow we have this crazy idea as human beings that we can hide from God and from one another and we can indulge in sin and like God doesn't know. I, I want you to know that God knows every secret of your life. He knows you, okay? So the, the people would go out and they would have this pagan sin fest and then they would begin to fast and deny themselves and try and become spiritual coming into resurrection celebration and and again I'm going to say that oftentimes we've always try and uh, make ourselves holy and presentable to God and you can't the only way we're made holy is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins and how the Holy Spirit fills us that's it so Here we are talking about this, and I want to take it to the next reason why I'm saying this to you, and I'm asking you to join me, that the day after resurrection celebration, Easter Sunday is what it's called culturally, that day, next Sunday, I want to embrace a 21-day fast of celebration of Christ and all that he does, and the purpose being twofold in my prayers And I'm asking you to join with me that we would pray for our obedience to the Holy Spirit and then the church's obedience to the Holy Spirit. That's the whole purpose of that fast. Because you see, when Christ died and arose, the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption took place at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came as Jesus, and we've been looking at scriptures to learn what he's saying to us, is that he had to go to heaven to be on the right hand of the Father to intercede for us so that he would send the Holy Spirit to us so that you and I could live the Christian life, to be empowered, to be transformed, to be changed, to know the word of God, to understand the truth of God and to understand what it is to live this life and how to live this life. And so as we're fasting after Easter, 
Resurrection uh, Sunday, we are embracing God where He is and asking us to embrace the Holy Spirit who's been poured out upon all flesh. So, I'm not asking you to deny yourself of food or water or anything like that. What I'm saying is, would you take something that is a part of your everyday life and remove it from your life and spend that time, that thing, with God with that purpose in your intention of prayer? Uh, Nobody has to tell me you're doing it or not. I'm just inviting you to join me. I'm asking God to do that, and I'm, uh, I'm just praying for the move of the Spirit of God that we need as a church. And so with that in mind, as we begin to embrace what God has planned for us today, I want to pray. I want to ask God to be God in this moment. Holy Spirit through the power of Christ and the resurrection and that that has been released and empowered and placed within us, we bind all lying and unclean spirits, all false spirits, all false light in the name of Jesus. And we command that their voice be silenced in this room, that you would bind that spirit and cast it from our midst, that only you, Holy Spirit, are able to speak and move in this place We give you freedom. We declare that you are God, that we are your servants, and we want you to have your way. And so, Holy Spirit, move, convict, empower, release, have your way. And only you, Holy Spirit, no other. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So we're talking about that Spirit-led life and the power of what the Holy Spirit is and who He is and what He's doing. And we're coming into this Palm Sunday, triumphant entry of Christ. And so I'm a pastor of 30 plus years and preached that many Palm Sundays and Easter's. And I'm like, Lord, you know, what do you want to do this week? We're praying and we're preaching and you're leading us in the spirit and the spirit led life. And am I supposed to like put a stop there and go to this because of the day on the calendar of which it is, which is an amazing celebration that we need to embrace. God, what are you doing? And the Spirit of God is so awesome. There was no change. There was no misdirection. There was no changing of sequence. It's the perfection of who God is as He leads us. And so as we come into this service this morning, looking to the message of what God would want to speak to us, today around the world, the Church of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is celebrating Palm Sunday or what we call the triumphant entry of Christ, which we've named Palm Sunday, as Jesus Christ himself came into Jerusalem. It is one of the few stories of the life of Jesus that is found in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, not all the stories of the ministry of Christ are recorded in all of the Gospels. There are a few that share a similar story of the ministry of Christ, and this is one of them. And whenever that event is recorded in all four of the Gospels, it's a very significant thing that we need to spend a little extra time paying attention to. All of it is important, don't misunderstand me. But when it's across the board in every Gospel, God is saying something that we need to very much be attentive to. Now, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find the triumphant entry of Christ. 
In that, then, we understand that Matthew wrote the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jew. And that is why when you read the the gospel according to Matthew, you will find the lineage of Christ because he had to come from the beginning through the lineage of David and be born of a virgin. That you will find all of the references of Matthew writing about how Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the coming Messiah, how he lived the law in truth. So you'll find Matthew writing about Jesus' life through that lens to a Jewish audience. Mark writes the gospel of Jesus Christ to a Roman audience. And therefore, the lineage doesn't matter to them. The law doesn't matter to them. The prophets don't matter to them. What matters to them is Jesus Christ is the Savior. And so Mark's gospel is a very quick-hitting, strong gospel about Jesus being the Savior. Luke writes to a Greek audience, and therefore when he was addressing Jesus to the Greek audience of his writings, he's addressing the Greek culture's fascination with the body, with the mystical, with the supernatural. And so Luke records more miracles than any of the other gospels. And he's coming at it from that approach. And then when you look into John, John is, uh, I can use the term, the Gentile gospel. It is the gospel of belief. It is a, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way when I say it is a generic gospel to all. And John himself writes in the 20th chapter the purpose of his writing of the gospel. And he says, these are written. He also says there could be volumes of books that the world could not contain of all that Jesus is and has done. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God. And so he's telling us this is the gospel of belief. All right, I say all of that to you so that when we come to this story of the triumphant entry, we understand its historical, cultural, and personal aspects as we come into what God wants to say to us. The moment in history is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy that God spoke through the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years before Jesus came. In Zechariah chapter 9, The prophet is writing to the people of God, Israel, Judah. He's writing to those people, and this is what he says. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Okay, so church, this is a very specific statement by God. Very clear He is telling the people that the city will be rejoicing. There will be this triumphant moment where Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior that was to come, would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, not just on a donkey, but the full occult of a donkey as he rides in. And he comes in humble. Okay. Now, when God made this proclamation to his people, and the people were looking for the Messiah, they had been told for generations since the beginning that the Messiah was coming. And the church taught them who he would be and how he would be and how he would look and what he would do. And so now, as we continue on with the, the, the messianic promise and Christ's fulfillment, as we look at the triumphant entry of Christ coming into Jerusalem and you read the Gospels, you will know that John records in chapters 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 the story of Lazarus. 
Now, this is at the, the conclusion of Jesus' ministry of three and a half years. A lot has been happening with Jesus. There's been blind people that could see, lame people that could walk, deaf people that could hear, demon-possessed set free. Um, a lot of stuff has been going on. He's been feeding people out of one lunch bag, thousands of people. I mean, there's this growing momentum. Everyone is talking about this Jesus, and could he be the one? comes to this climactic moment when Jesus hears that Lazarus has died and he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and it's been four days and everybody knows Lazarus is dead. They were a significant family in the city and Jesus says, roll the stone away. And they go like, wait a minute. He's going to stink by now. He's already started to decompose. It's been four days since he opened it up. They open it up and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. And everybody in the city is blown away that he is commanding the dead to come to life. And they saw it with their own eyes. And everyone began to talk about Jesus at a greater level. And people were believing this has to be the one. And it tells us in the scriptures that the high priests and the leaders of the church right then wanted to get Jesus and put him to death but they also wanted to kill Lazarus because many were believing on Jesus because of Lazarus. There was this incredible movement of people believing Jesus is the one. So all of this climax that's been going on, three and a half years of ministry, people's lives impacted, changed. People are looking for the one. They're under the authority of the Romans. There's oppression for God's people. They are servants to the Roman Empire. And here's the one. And so they've been told all their life, he's coming to sit upon the throne of David. He is going to be the king of kings and he will sit upon that throne like God promised forever. So the people of Jerusalem are all getting excited and ecstatic saying, it's time, now is the day, it's happening before us. And so on this moment, we read the account in Matthew 21. As Jesus and disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there. He said, And soon as you enter, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Okay, we just said this now. See why Matthew is saying, look at this. It's here in our history. God said this. Look, it happened on this date. This took place exactly like God said it would. Let's keep reading about what's going on then. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heavens. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Man, get a picture of that, would you? The whole city. Who is this? They asked. What's all the commotion? What is going on? 
what is happening because everyone is involved in what is happening in the city of Jerusalem. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Church, everything they were doing in this proclamation of Jesus was saying he is the king. Everything that was taking place, the branches they were laying on the road were significant. The cloaks that they were laying, their coats they were laying on the coal and in the streets, they were saying, He is the one. He's the one. And they were making the statement so everyone would know that He was the one. I want to give you a couple of moments in their history to clarify something for us to see what God is saying to us. In the Old Testament, thank you. When we read in 2 Kings, we know that in Israel there was a bad king not serving God. And God said, I'm done with him. I'm going to overthrow that uh, throne. And we're going to establish a new king. And so God spoke to a prophet, told the prophet to go and anoint Jehu, who was a commander in Israel's army, as the next king. So the prophet comes, and the commanders of the army are all sitting together in a room. And the prophet comes and says, Jehu, I have a word for you. And Jehu gets up and leaves and goes out into the other room with the prophet. The prophet takes out the oil like God told him, pours it on him, and he says, Jehu, God has anointed you and chosen you to be the next king of Israel. And God told the prophet, once you do that, close up your vessel, grab your cloak, and run for your life. All right? That's what he told him. So the prophet does this and takes off running. Jehu comes back into the room. Now, just think about this, right? They don't know what's going on. He's got oil running off his head. The commanders are sitting there, and they're like, Jehu, what's going on? What did that guy say to you? And here's the words that we are shared in 2 Kings chapter 9. Check it out. So Jehu told them, he said to me, this is what the Lord says. I have anointed you to be the king over Israel. Then they quickly spread out their cloaks on the bare steps and they blew a ram's horn shouting, Jehu is king. Okay, now church, I'm only sharing that with you for this purpose so that we understand the significance of what is taking place. What's happening here is these army commanders, when they heard a proclamation that said, Jehu is king, they immediately stopped being under the influence and the authority of the existing king. And what they said was, take off our cloaks, lay it down below you, we're all in. You are now our king. We proclaim this. We're not shy about it. We're shouting it. We're blowing a trumpet. We're celebrating. The old regime is gone. The new is here. You're it. So these commanders were saying, all that I have All that I am, all my authority, all my power, all my weapons, all my abilities, they're yours. I am now subject to you. And they declared Jehu as king. Okay, now check it out. If you read in the the book of Kings and you know what happens, Jehu says, if you are with me, then let's go. And he goes to overthrow the current leadership, destroys all of them, puts them to death, and he goes and sits upon the throne. Because a new king always takes the place on the throne because it is making a statement to everyone of who now is in power. That's what that throne meant. 
So if you understand what's happening with Jehu, this is understood culturally by the people. All right, now we say this for a reason as we look at what's going on because you remember the people were throwing their cloaks under him and those that didn't have cloaks, more of the poorer community in that, were taking the palm branches and cutting branches from a tree and laying it down saying the exact same thing. We declare you're it. We're all in. It's you. Okay, that's what was happening. Now here's the other significant thing in history as we see this about him riding into the city and the fact of how culturally things took place and what Jesus was doing was something that the people were very well aware of what was happening and they meant what they were doing, calling him king. When King David was about to die and he was on his deathbed, his other son, Adonijah, which was his eldest son, knew his father was dying, but yet King David had not passed away yet. Adonijah called some of the leaders into a different city and made a feast for himself and declared to them, I'm king. So they began to have a party celebrating that he was going to be king, even though David was still alive. So the prophet Nathan and Bathsheba and some of the other leaders hear about this. They weren't invited to the party, so they know they're going to die. But God had already spoken and said, your son Solomon will be the next king. So David had shared God's word with Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and the prophets, and they knew. So they come to David and they say, have you anointed Adonijah as the next king? Because he's declared a feast for himself, and this is what's going on. And David's like, no, that's not the way it'll be. So he calls Bathsheba in, and Solomon in, and some of the others. And I want to read to you this account from 1 Kings chapter 1. Then King David ordered, call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benani, son of Jehoiada. When they come in, came into the king's presence, the king said to them, Take Solomon and my officials down to Guyon Spring. Solomon is to ride on my mule. There, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. Blow the ram's horn and shout, Long live King Solomon! Then escort him back here, and he will sit upon my throne. He will succeed me as king, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. So the newly appointed king, anointed leader, would immediately come in and take their place upon the throne. So this is what's happening. King David says, Solomon's it. They anoint Solomon as king. The whole city, if you read the account, is in an uproar. To the point that the out, outskirting cities heard the sounds, and it said the earth was shaking with what was going on. When Adonijah and those in their own little party saying, we're king, heard what had happened, they all ran for their life. Solomon comes in and sits upon the throne of David and established himself as king. All right, so I tell you all that because this was common practice, and they understood culturally what was happening. So, now let's go to Jesus. Here comes Jesus into town, into Jerusalem. The prophet said this is the way he'd approach. The crowds and the masses are saying, look, he's done all these miracles. He's provided food for all of us out of a sack lunch. He's brought people back from the dead. This has to be the one. This is the king that's going to set us free from the Romans. And so the people were coming out in mass, believing, they believed, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the king who would sit upon the throne. 
They were wholeheartedly all in on this. But they were wholeheartedly in on this because of what they thought he would do for them. Okay? So now, understanding their culture and their practice and what they're doing um, and how they really believed this, all the people were celebrating who he was. I want you to understand that because sometimes we get confused and I've been confused when I say, how could they have been saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the son of David, and a few days later they're saying, crucify him. Well, here's why. Because when you look at what happens here, the people have been taught that the Messiah would come and sit upon the throne, he would overthrow all the enemies, that they would step up and become, he would make their life, I mean, think about what they were saying. Like, the economy's going to boom, Everyone's going to have what they need. Everything is going to be provided for us. All of our sickness is going to disappear. The Romans will be gone. I mean, who wouldn't vote for him? So here we are. He's the one, and they believe it with all their hearts. But something very significant takes place that Matthew records in the triumphant entry of Christ. When Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king, and everyone is proclaiming him as such. Where did he go? He did not go to the palace to go to the throne. Actually, the very next statement says, Jesus entered the temple. Hmm. Jesus entered the temple. And this is what he did, church. And he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over all the tables of money changers and chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So, here's what the king does. He comes in the way God said he would, and he went to the right throne, which was found in the temple, and he established his own throne for eternity the way God said he would and the people expected him to go to the palace and establish that throne the way the church told them he would so Jesus goes into the temple and causes a huge scene throwing out all the customary practices of the people in their worship of God the priests the leaders of the church are even more ticked they're like, we don't like this guy already. They're declaring him to be the Messiah. And now he's coming and he's messed up our system. They want him dead. They want him dead. Church, the people were declaring him to be king and they believed. But you know what happened after Jesus went in and threw over all the stuff that was happening in the church? He left the city. He never did go to the palace. He never even addressed the Romans. He addressed the house of God. And when he addressed the house of God, he said, this is what's messed up. This is what I came to fix. Mm. Yes, Lord. So he did take the throne that God said he would. He did establish his kingship on the throne of David that God promised he would. However, Jesus just left the city. So all the people that believed in him woke up the next day 
and they still had to go to work. They still had to pay their taxes. They still saw the Roman guards and centurions. And they saw that authority over them. And then they went home and got up the next day and it was the same way. And the next day was the same way. And now they're saying in their own minds, we can't be the one. Nothing has changed. Everything we believed, everything we've been taught, everything that we were looking for is not happening. He can't be the one. So now the church leaders say, he's a liar. He has presented false truth. He's not delivered on his word. And so the people begin to believe the leadership that he's not the one because the evidence they were looking for was not provided in him. They quickly turned and said, he can't be. Crucify him. Church, as I was processing through this situation, and God was like challenging me. And I've often looked at them and think, what a bunch of nuts. How could you have done that? How could you have done that? And then the Lord was speaking to me and saying in my heart, you know, how do you proclaim him? See, many have and many do proclaim him as king because we want him to do something for us. Oftentimes we need him to change our circumstances. So we declare, you are the king, you are the Messiah, you are my savior. And because I believe that you are, then you should do this. And it was like, oh, I'm the dumb one. Because I've done that. I've sang his praises, declared who he is, and then put my expectations on him, expecting him to deliver as my Messiah, not as my God. And I'm like, man, God, that's messed up. And, and I was like, wow, you know, we, we will declare him king because we want him to set us free. We will declare him king because we want him to change us. We'll declare him king because we want him to change others. When he doesn't do what we ask him to or what we think he should, do we still declare him king? See, I'm talking about in our own life and the way we live, in our practices, in our faith. Could it be that we're holding God hostage to our interpretation of who he should be instead of seeing him as God who is not who I've been taught he is not who I want him to be but who he is so we want a king often I'll say it this way many people want a king who will serve them but not many of us want a king we can serve See, we're serving a Messiah, a Savior, a God, our God, like he's a genie in a bottle instead of God. We're, you know, I mean, seriously, we're, I mean, God invites us to share our needs with him, so don't misunderstand me. But still, I project on him his duty 
in my prayer life all the time. I'm like, and I should ask him. Okay, but way too much of my prayer, way too much of what I ask of God is about me instead of about him. And so the declaration of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, save now. Save now. That's what they were saying, you know. Save now. Set us free today. Do something for me right now. And when he doesn't, crucify him. When things don't go our way or he doesn't produce like we think he should, we sometimes turn our back on him. See, we think he should be doing more than he is because he's God. I hear it all the time from people. If he's a God of love, then why are there sick children? Why are there wars? Why is this? Why is that? What? Okay, I want everyone to understand the reason for all of that is sin, not God. Sin. That's why it is. Can God do something? Yes, he has. He has come to us as our Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Church, I mean, that's the truth of the matter. But see, what we want is we want you to save now. We want you to fix this the way we want it fixed. So we know you're God, but we want you right now to remove all disease. To meet all of our needs. To give peace everywhere. To give abundance and blessing. If you're God, that's what ought to be. I mean, seriously, there's many of us project that on him. And God says, that's going to happen. He does. It's going to happen. Down the road, when he says so, he will end the sin and suffering and bring forth the king and the kingdom that he said he would. Okay, church? But right now, what we're doing is we're dealing with the redemption of Christ and living what he's called us to live in God's terms, not my terms, not your terms, on God's terms. All right. Now, here's the thing. Second, I've read these verses to you over and over. We're going to do it again. We'll keep on reading them forever. Here it is in Second Peter. As he talks to the church, he says this to us. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So now I look at that and I'm saying, okay, God, uh, I can live a godly life, a victorious life, a Christ-like life. God's provided everything I need to do that. Church, God's provided that for us. In the death and resurrection of Christ, who killed sin and deaths, and he set us free from our sinful nature by giving us on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit, that we might be now spirit-led with God upon the throne of our heart, a new authority in my life. Church, here's what's happened if you're a child of God. The old king who reigned was Dave. And he was dead in sin. And he collaborated with Satan's schemes. And in the moment where Dave said, I surrender, 
I need you to be my Savior. I can no longer deal with this. Only you can. What I did was said... I'm all in. I'm all in. Here's what happened. The Spirit of God came and He sat upon the throne of my heart. And He said, there's a new king. There's a new power. There's a new way of living. And now, as He establishes His throne in my life, I am growing in what it means to be under the authority and the power of Christ, my King. As I live this life, church, Jesus has some tables to throw over. He's got some stuff to kick out. Because what He knows is what's been established inside of my heart as I desire to serve Him There has been corruption by the church that has gone into my life to believe I have to do this or this to be a child of God. And it's not what God says. God says a surrendered obedience of I'm all in. No longer will I live in sin. You are now the king of my life. That's what God's word declares to us. That's what the Savior made possible to us, church. And so God is busy remodeling the temple of my heart where He now sits upon the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Yeah. That's what we're shouting about on the day of the triumphant entry. We're not clueless like they were. We understand this is what God's asking of us. But He's not asking us to do this for what He can do for us. No. He's doing this to say, what can you do for me? Surrender. I'm all in. That's what it's all about. (laughs) God is amazing, isn't He? Oh my goodness, man. I'm like, Lord, it's so cool how He does stuff, isn't it? It just blows my mind. I'm like, Lord, it's just crazy that it's just God, you know? It is. It's just God. I'm on my action steps, just so you know, so I'm, like, giving you a little bit of cushion of time today. But I don't want us to just, like, end it and run out the door. Because, you know, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, like, as the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings, you need to know Him. Today, you need to know Him. I want you to know that God wants to transform you. He loves you where you are. He's not waiting for you to perform for Him. He's waiting for us to surrender to Him. That's all it is. It's, I'm done. I've, I've been running the kingdom way too long. I'm done. Here I am. So those of you that know Jesus, uh, and if you don't know Him, you know, make today. We invite you to the altar. That's what we call the front of the church. There's a lot about that, but I don't want to get into it right now. I just want you to know that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you come up and let me introduce you to Him in a personal way? Not that I have an authority. He is the authority. I just want to help you if there's anything I can do so you can get to know Him. Don't leave without Him. For those of you that know Him as your Savior, are you serving Jesus because of what you need Him to do? Or are you serving Him because of who He is? 
That is the Christian response, of course. We can't say anything else, right? Then, because of who he is. But just pause for a second, okay, before we do anything else. Here's what I want to ask us as believers. Will you still serve him if the biggest need you have in your life does not change? So your circumstances may never be better than they are right now. They might not. Your health may never be better than it is right now. Your life may not exist past this day. Everything around you could fall apart. That does not change who he is and who you belong to. And so when we're asking, like, are you serving him because of what you need of him? I want you to have him more than just a lucky rabbit's foot in your pocket. He needs to be your king established upon the throne of your life. That is not about the current circumstances or future circumstances, but he is God. He is. <clears throat> what false religious practice does Jesus want to tear down in you? I'm not telling you have any. I'm not saying everybody in this room, you got something jacked up in you because of the church. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying sometimes we can own false beliefs. We can be practicing things that are not even biblical or spiritually guided by God because we've been taught that's the way to do it. One of the easiest ways to identify that is that if I'm in bondage to something or it owns me, like I can't get by without doing this one thing and I feel uncomfortable if I don't, I just want you to know there's, there's a pretty high likelihood that that's religious legalism. Because Jesus said that he came to bring us life to the full, abundant life. He said, take my yoke upon you for it is easy and my burden is light. Cast your cares upon me for I care for you. Be anxious for nothing. But pray and thank God for all that he has done. Right? Fix your thoughts on what is pure and right and lovely and true and of good report and praiseworthy and excellent. You understand, church? This is what I'm saying. The, the, this this in, invitation of God into this relationship with Him is one of peace and fullness, not of bondage. It's a life of freedom. It's a life of purpose and fullness. So if there's just some kind of religious practice, let Jesus kick it out of your life. Let Him. He wants to set us free today. So here's the last thing I say. This is my last action step. Will you cast your cloak under Jesus today? And so church, here's what we're saying in this last moment. Will you surrender and submit everything, everything, everything to who he is? Not just my time, talents, and resources. My everything. I am all in. I'm yours. I'm done. I'm asking you, church. God's inviting you. I, I want to be all in. Today, I join with you. And I'm committing myself that I'm all in. And I'm inviting you right now to make a decision about who Christ is to you. Would you stand with me as we do that? If you don't know Him, the altar's open to know Him. 
If you need Him to throw stuff out of your life, the altar's open for that. If you want to lay your cloak down and say, I'm all in, then do that. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, be obedient to Him and let Him do what He wants to do as He establishes His throne in your life. It is the Spirit-led life that God has called and planned for us to live. It is life itself. God, thank You. Thank You. Thank You, Lord. As we in our hearts bow before You, <laughs> Lord, none of us have a right to stand before You. None of us do. Lord, we bow before You in our hearts and declare that You are God. You are King. We submit to You. We give You full authority, full reign. We're all in. I'm all in, Lord. Forgive us for the things that we have placed upon God. Forgive me for things that I have placed upon people in your name. Set them free. Set them free, Lord. In Jesus' name. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You are Savior, King of kings, and Lord of lords. You, God, reign supreme. We are all in. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church. Oh, my goodness. What an amazing thing that God has done for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you. We're so humble. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we're not waiting for that day. We're doing it today. Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Church, God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah.